You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Lottie Dowling, a global educator specialising in languages, culture, digital technologies and teacher professional learning. Much of Lottie's work revolves around global citizenship, that is, how school students are increasingly interconnected with others across the world. This episode offers insights into some of Lottie's collaborative approaches and practices as she works with teachers to incorporate and strengthen various domains in their teaching practice. Knowledge, that is learning about the world, appreciating global perspectives and culture, and intercultural dialogue. Once these programs and initiatives are running, students might then take some sort of local action with the aim of global impact. Lottie outlines some of the keys to success, including adequate resourcing, planning school curricula, and involving and engaging the community. We explore some of the more practical approaches that teachers might use in their local context, such as performing a school audit of the library or school garden, even the classroom wall and various aspects that extend beyond the classroom. Underpinned with diversity, equity, justice and inclusion, global citizenship can ideally involve all school staff, as well as parents and community, sharing their culture and supporting teachers to plan and implement local learning initiatives. Lottie emphasises the value of collaboration, co-creation and lifelong learning in a rapidly changing world. Here's my conversation with Lottie Dowling. So good to see you again, Lottie. We're uh, we're off and running. (laughs) Woohoo! Here we are. <laughs> so, I, my, myself and our listeners, that, I didn't phrase that very well, I would like to know where a little bit about your background. I know that you're really active in online spaces and lots of online initiatives, but could you take us back to maybe, you know, uh, a previous time where, you know, what did you study at? school or what were you interested in at school what did you study at university I do understand you had a quite a diverse interesting um, experience life experience you've done lots and lots of things so give us Mm. maybe the short version go (laughs) sure go truncated Um, well thanks for having me it's great to be here Uh, I was born in the UK and we moved over to New Zealand when I was very little Um, And my parents were bohemian artists, so I had a very kind of eclectic childhood. Um, My parents were friends with people of all sort of faiths and backgrounds, and they were in a a music group, so we had people kind of coming through the house um, constantly. Um, But they were very open-minded, my parents, and and I, I feel very grateful for that you know um, our local kindergarten was actually one of the first initiatives in New Zealand that was a totally immersion 
Māori uh, the Indigenous People Language uh, Preschool and that was our local kindy and they said yep cool off you go so um, I had you know a very um, caring and warm kind of very open childhood and then I decided uh, to go and do teacher training which was what it was called back then, teacher training. Um, and it was a three-year degree. And off I went. I did my primary school degree um, and taught for a couple of years in New Zealand um, in a community school which was quite mixed, but also like a lot of Auckland had Polynesian and Māori students at it, uh, which is a strong part of New Zealand's culture. Um, at, after that, I decided it was time to do my big OA, pack my bag, off I went, um, stopped off in India, it was the first country I stopped in, uh, did a bit of volunteer teaching there um, and went over to Africa where I actually had two half-sisters over to Zimbabwe uh, and ended up in London, teaching in London on and off for about three and a half, four years uh, in a variety of schools, mainly cover teaching. Um, and that was a huge shock. You know, I think anyone who's taught in London after coming from this part of the world, <laughs> hands up. Um, yeah, it's, it's a big... Why was it, why a, was it a huge shock. shock? What was happening there that was so different? Oh, um, inner city, gritty London and all the diversity and social issues that came with those contexts. Um, the violence uh, was particularly shocking to me. Um, and because when you're a cover teacher, you know, the schools unfortunately need the most cover teachers are the ones that, you know, have often the most problems. So that's where you get sent. Um, but I also learned, I you know, I got exposed to students from parts of the world that I never would have got from being over here, this side of the world, uh, particularly Af our African students and different parts of Europe. Um, so it was an incredible time. It was a time of great growth. And then I decided to do something very different. I took a contract at an international school in Beijing, China. And um, that was very, obviously very different. Uh, so expats from all over the world, second, third culture kids um, and taught in the primary school, did a, a, a range of roles, you know, leadership, curriculum development, um, head of drama and literacy and loved that for five years. It was a startup and there was a lot of growth at that time. Um, but in my sixth year, I took some time off. I did a bit of teaching. I learned Chinese and properly after being there five years. And I went and worked at um, the Department of Education in Chaoyang District, which is the biggest district in Beijing, China, on a teacher training project around uh, teaching English as a second language in primary and middle schools. So this was after six years in China. This was the first time I'd actually really been in Chinese state schools. Uh, I learned an incredible amount from uh, that time from about Chinese culture. I think I, I felt like three months into my first uh, school, uh, I'd learned more in three months than I had in six years about what, Chinese culture. What were some of the big, big things that you learned? Like what... What can you oh, remember? Just, oh, I just remember so much of it was, you know, we say with this type of, you know, global citizenship and learning about the cultures is that the food, the three Fs, food, 
flags and fashion, right, the obvious stuff. But it was the non-obvious stuff. It was the communication styles. It was the hierarchical systems in place. Um, It was things like if you wanted, if you asked for something, you would often get told maybe, oh, yeah, maybe. And it took me a while to realize that maybe was no. Uh, maybe maybe it was probably not. Well, they um, didn't want to say no, I guess. They were hesitant to say no. So they, they said maybe. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want you to lose face. Losing face is, you know, a, a cultural term. And um, so there were things like that that I was sort of learning all the time, um, fascinating things, even things like um, the Young Pioneers, which is like kind of the school um, – school system for the students that's linked to the the communist system so really fascinating kind of dynamics within the schools um one of my teaching colleagues uh, Miffy, gave me this beautiful porcelain bowl to take back for my christmas present um i proudly showed her a photo of my family using it as a salad bowl uh, in our new zealand backyard and she absolutely died because it's it was meant to be displayed because it was valuable and there we were using it for a for a barbecue, and <laughs> <laughs> what did you? Oh, well, I guess it's lesson learned, or yes, gifts. It... There's, there's so many things around gifts that you have to learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I was I was in that system for four years. I absolutely loved it. I learned a lot. Did a lot of um, work with the teachers around capacity building and teaching a second language. Um, just on the side, I kind of and accidentally co-founded a improvisation theatre company with some other expats that, um, you know, wanted to do something fun on the side. That in in itself is a form of improvisation, I suppose, you know. Just, oh, yeah, as you do, just happen to, you know, come up with this initiative. (laughs) Well, improv is a completely new concept over there. You know, everything's kind of pre-planned down to the tiniest detail. So it it kind of just grew quite rapidly without us even meaning it to. So that was, you know, very interesting, interesting times doing shows and even small festivals um, in a theatre there. Uh, And then I got to sort of a decade in Beijing and I was like, oh, I've been here a lot longer than I thought I was going to. And I'd really fallen in love with China. I traveled extensively on my school holidays. I I didn't often go home. I often used that time to travel around Asia and China and try to understand it more. But it was sort of time to do something a bit different and come a bit closer to home. And so I ended up in Melbourne uh, working at the Asia Education Foundation, which I thought, you know, I couldn't have landed, you know, a more perfect role leaving China um, than working with educators across Australia to build what they call Asia capabilities. Um, so that was really cool, doing lots of professional development and learning and different facets. Uh, and then I came over to Meg um, a few years ago, where we do language and culture programs through online learning with teachers in our home countries through China and Colombia. Um, and I work kind of very specifically in the global citizenship space, which is something I'm very passionate about. So uh, when I was at Dulwich, um, I think one of the things that really stood out to me was the diversity of the students and the parents. And this idea of identity was quite interesting because um, it was the first time I'd really come across this idea of third culture kids. Uh, Of course, it would have existed, you know, in in London, for example, because 
there's a lot of migration there as well. Could you, could you just this- get us up, up to speed? What What is that? That's come up before in a previous episode of um, this podcast, but what, what is that? What's a third culture mm. kid? Mm. A third culture kid is a student um, that comes from what they say is, a you know, their identity is tied to a sort of a third culture. So it's not strongly rooted necessarily in one culture and that might not be their parents on either side or um, necessarily where they're born. So for um, for example, someone, someone, maybe the parents grew up in England and, or, you know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of ambassadorial um, children are third culture's kids. So mum might be from Japan, dad is from Sweden, they're currently living in Beijing, China. The last posting, maybe he's, you know, works for the government or um, an ambassador or he works for a business. Um, Many of the big, you know, companies move their families around and these kids do three, five-year stints at international school after international school. So, yeah, this idea that... um, these students have this kind of amazing understanding of the world in a way. They've lived in other countries and cultures. They've brought, you know, all of this knowledge and wisdom with them, but they're not strongly rooted in their own identity themselves. Uh, and this idea of, you know, when we say, oh, where are you from? Or uh, they wouldn't be able to answer that simply. I say, oh, I'm from New Zealand. But they would say, well, uh, I was born in Paraguay, but I... <laughs> X, Y, and Z. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty interesting time to be navigating um, when we're looking at global learning, which is something I have always tried to infuse in my in my work. Um, yeah, a very interesting kind of lens to be working with it from. And of course, you know, many of the students had ties to China because they'd either lived there or, you know, their connections. Um, yeah. So what did all that mean for you as a, a practitioner? You started off as a primary school teacher several years ago or, you know, before that, but then you got into, it sounded as though you were getting more and more into teacher professional learning and other kind of um, other kind of areas like that. So what did, how did this sort of ideas build like for you, like with stuff that you were interested mm-hmm. in? It's really clear that you were interested in it, but how did mm-hmm. it sort of shape what you were, you decided to do? Yeah, well, as as you know, middle management at Dulwich, I, I refused to go up. I was offered a few opportunities and I thought I don't want to kind of go up. I don't want to end up in a principalship. It's, it's not at this point right for me. I want to go sideways. And so I would take these opportunities and, and what that would inevitably mean was that I would run PD for staff. And I'd run these sort of days um, for staff. But when it was time to leave and move on to the next role, I... Um, was thinking about this and I thought I want to do something where I'm working with teachers and what attracted me to the Chow Young English project was it was a sustained ongoing collaboration over a a one-year period so the way the program worked was that we would have a foreign English teacher an expat working alongside a Chinese national in a Chinese school they would co-plan together and it was a very intensive process they had PD every week they were uh, observed with observation feedback cycles every three weeks Um, but I worked on the program as a teacher, so I got to collaborate together and write these lesson plans with someone from another culture. And then when I moved into the sort of um, training side of it or the professional d- 
development professional learning side, um, what I really loved about the program was that we looked at everybody's contributions because we had the, you know, we had the native staff, the Chinese staff, and then we had the expats and they all brought so much to it together. But also it was this ongoing sustained PD across a long period of time. Um, and so that's when, and we had sort of, you know, quite a bit of feedback from the department saying this is one of the most successful programs we've ever run. And they put it down to both the intensity of, you know, the, the professional development and the observation feedback cycles, but because it was over a, a longer period of time that we were working with the, with the teachers. Yeah, so I guess, you know, here I am a few years later and, you know, the work I'm doing now has been the choices I've made and where I've gone to work has very strongly been influenced by these experiences that I've had um, and various PD roles and, and professional learning and professional development roles in global contexts, um, in cultures I'm not familiar with, um, but also working in very diverse teams. And, and that's what I sort of love because I absolutely love to keep learning myself. Uh, and so when I'm working with educators, I, I love that collaborative co-creation kind of approach. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Okay, we hear a lot about global citizenship, especially lately, uh, the last few years especially, but what, what does that look like for you in terms of what you do? Like you're kind of working on lots of different projects by the sounds of it. So how do, how do you incorporate all that into something? Yeah, great question. Well, global citizenship is this kind of slightly abstract term for many, many people. And um, I guess the first thing is it's strongly rooted in languages and languages education. Um, and obviously, you know, that's what at MEG our, our teachers are doing. Um, but it is so much more than that. And I think because it's such an abstract concept, um, a lot of the work I do through professional learning or professional development is really helping schools and educators clarify what it actually is and what are those concrete actions that they can be taking in their schools to do this work. Like what can they latch on to? What's something they can do um, beyond a languages program? Uh, and so when I'm working with schools, we work a little bit about around, you know, the models of it, which, you know, there's there's all these sort of models. But at the end of the day, when <laughs> I'm... Hang on a minute. What are, what are all these models you speak of? <laughs> Models, oh, you know, the models. <laughs> yeah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Just, um, uh, an idea of maybe one of them or... Yeah, sorry. Um, global citizenship. Well, global citizenship is this idea that we are a citizen of the world and essentially it is um, developing the knowledge, skills, the attitudes and the values through a global lens. Uh, and there are these different models. Um Global competence is something that's become a term that's kind of been used a bit more readily. And with PISA, the international testing body, introducing it as a subject that will be was assessed in 2018, they developed their own framework. Um, all these frameworks and 
PISA, the Asia Society has one. They generally have these four domains. So the first one is um, the knowledge piece learning about the world and that's kind of I think in the history in the history of education that's kind of been done quite well you know out of all the four sections we learn about the world through books pre-internet um, and then there's the appreciating perspectives so understanding different ideas and perspectives and that's where kind of understanding culture comes in then we have the intercultural dialogues where the communication piece communicating with others from diverse backgrounds. And the last piece um, is a really interesting piece. I feel like it hasn't really been addressed um, historically particularly well, but we're seeing a big increase in it, which is the take action, taking action, students taking action. Uh, and we're obviously seeing that kind of en masse with the Fridays for the Future and, you know, a lot of our kind of students involving Greta Thunberg's climate change movement, um, these you know, oh, so that's Greta, Greta Thunberg is a, a good example, I guess, of that, like that action-based global citizenship. Forgive Absolutely. me if I'm stating, stating the obvious. Forgive me. <laughs> yeah, no, she's she's great. And she's a really great example of what they call global, global impact, starting with a local action. So she just started sitting on the steps of her own kind of parliament with her own one person. You see those early photos of her with a placard. Um, and now it's, you know, if you look at the website, it's however many, you know, movements all over the world, you can find your local movement. Um, and students are inspired to take action. But I believe that we are seeing an increase in student activism en masse. Like every day I sort of hear more and more um, of this. So it's helping. I guess part of it is like, okay, we've got these four parts, but how do we actually do that? How do we do that in our schools? And how do we do that with a crowded curriculum, which is the term they use here? But, yeah. That's Any, always a anyone con Yeah, that's a constant thing whenever you're trying to bring in um – any sort of new piece of learning, it's it's just sort of always going to be there. So how do you address that or how have you addressed it? Yeah, yeah. So essentially I've developed a framework which has, you know, five key areas, uh, resourcing curriculum, uh, community engagement and involvement, which is often a piece that's missed, um, and a couple of others. And then what I've done in those is I've broken each one down into actionable things that you can actually do. Uh, so they can, it's like a menu, right? And you say, first of all, you say, what is, what is, what does it mean to do a, address global citizenship in your school? And inevitably you get a, a you know, you get a different answer every single person that you talk to. People, um, and then when you. Are people up for that kind of, um, do they have a response or do they, they struggle with kind of, oh, I never really thought about it or, or maybe a mixture yeah. of both. Yeah, I think it's a mix. I think it's definitely a mixture, and um, I think there are the obvious answers, like people are like oh, language programs. You know, that's something I I definitely know. Um, I think global citizenship is the two sided coin, which is it is because it's abstract. It can be so easily missed and, and that's why it doesn't often get addressed because people are like, well, what is it and how do we actually do it? But because it's abstract, it can be kind of embedded through every single thing that you do. So, yeah, I think, I think that there's somebody asked me the other day, do you see an increase in this type of work? 
and and understanding and global citizenship. And I think, like you said just before, Mark, I think more people are talking about it, particularly uh, in light of two things. The first thing is that because of globalization, we've seen a pushback with you know the far right. Um, you know, Trumpism. Uh, and so the people who believe strongly in this, their voices are getting louder too. So the people who believe in this are growing and are being louder. Um, the second reason I think we're seeing more of it is because of COVID-19. Uh, two things. One, we're seeing how interconnected and interdependent we actually really are, even though we've always known this, right, through global supply chains. And here in Australia, we like can't ship our rubbish off to China anymore. So we've got to deal with it, right? Uh, but with COVID-19, we saw this mass movement, this mass upskill of digital technologies. And that is such a kind of key part of, or can be a key part of global citizenship. So I think more people feel confident addressing it. Um, there's so many online resources and platforms for it that people are finding those resources. Um, so when I work with schools, we just sit down and we look at this framework, we go through it all. And I say, I think it's my Kiwi background, Mark. I'm a, I'm a very practical woman. I'm like, here are <laughs> a whole lot of things you can actually do. So what you are can some of audit the, your... <laughs> oh, yeah, what are some of the favourites that teachers respond to? Audit. <laughs> yeah, audit. Do a good audit. Um, you can audit your school library and look at what text you've got in there. And school librarians are wonderful at doing this, but many schools don't have school librarians. Um, things like your actual school environment. Like we have, we have to, we put things on the walls every day. Let's think about what we're actually putting up there. And, you know, the whole D-E-J-I, diversity, equity, justice and inclusion movement is absolutely, you know, growing and, and, and more educators are becoming familiar with those terms uh, and that work. And global citizenship is part of that. Like having your school diversity included with your parents, uh, having um, your school diversity celebrated. Um, I mean, one school I worked with, it was really exciting. They were in uh, California in uh, San Diego and they decided to put a piece in their school newsletter every month um, to, you know, acknowledge their school community um, diversity. And that was something that they said, we have this amazing diversity on our doorsteps, but we've always thought about global citizenship being this kind of out there thing, right? You know, put a kids on planes or learn about the world. <laughs> Sounds all very, very kind of uh, broad and just wonderful, but very broad. But yeah, and expensive. I guess it, <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of like yeah. not not for everyone, possibly. So you you're no. trying to get them to to sort of encourage thinking around what what can they do every day, almost like locally, like kind yeah. of small bits and pieces. I like the um the audits of the school classroom walls or the library or, you know, other things like that. And then I guess well, one today, of our, hmm? sorry, I was just going to say one of our schools um, at Meg, she, they do Chinese and she said, well, we needed to build a new garden. So we decided to design it in a Chinese style and the kids have been involved. And so they have a Chinese garden now in their school. And that's reflective of the Chinese program that they're running. So I think sometimes it's like, well, what are we doing anyway? We're doing a school mural or we've got to build a garden. Why not, you know, think, use it with intention and purpose um, to build these ideas and concepts? 
What's, what's so great about this work when you're working with schools is that it's going to look different to every single school because every single school is different. Um, and recently we got contacted by a school saying, you know, we're about to break for the summer and we'd really love to um, include a, a media list of films, they learn Spanish, of, of films that kids might want to watch over. They, they might not, but, you know, that are around Hispanic um, culture. And that's something we had actually already. So, um, you know, I think the fact that the schools kind of are looking for opportunities beyond the classroom is really exciting. The other, the other thing that I think gets missed a lot in this work is um, what's kind of already there, which is the community engagement and involvement. And when I was working with, um, I mentioned the school in San Diego, when I was working with a school in San Diego just a few months ago, we were talking about uh, one of the um, one of the aspects, one of the programs, I can't remember. And I said, well, who do you have on staff? Where are your staff from? And it was just like light bulbs. They were like, oh, ding, 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 ding. We've got, you know, so-and-so from, they, you know, had teachers from, you know, very different eclectic backgrounds, but they'd never thought to offer the opportunity for those staff um, let alone the parents in the community, um, you know, to share, to share about their own culture or to see where that person who's already in the school every day might come in and support what was going on in a unit of work, you know, three, four, you know, river systems or, you know, stories from around the world and literature or PE, games, teach a game from your own culture. Um, so, and then, of course, they were, the school in particular said, we want to, actively kind of, um, you, let's use that word audit again, we're going to audit our uh, school diversity and um, look at all the different cultural groups and, and languages in our community and from our, you know, in our parents, and then offer the opportunity for them to come in and support the learning. And I mean, how beautiful is that, right? Like how proud are those kids seeing their cultures represented in their classrooms and what an amazing resource for the rest of the students and the teachers to and, and the teachers, right? Not just the students are learning, everyone is learning. And that's what's exciting about this work. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So we're... Definitely having a contemporary conversation here. That's definitely, there's a lot happening for teachers. They have a crowded curriculum and they're very, very busy. And the last couple of years have been really quite intense. But this sort of movement or, you know, groundswell is kind of happening. So where do you think it's headed or what's happening? What do you think, what are the future, what does the future hold for all of this kind of territory, do you think? Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, the crystal ball, hey? Uh, well, you know, I think there's um, there's two aspects. There's the future of kind of what I'm seeing going on in professional learning and there's also global citizenship. And I think, and they're obviously interconnected. Uh, I think with professional learning, we're hearing a lot about, you know, the, the importance of personalised learning, um, the breaking down of the silos. And 
And I believe, and obviously I am only seeing a small snippet of, of this, but I am part of global communities um, on different platforms, on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Clubhouse. I had noticed uh, you are very active in those spaces, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm noticing in those spaces and what I love about those spaces is that it is collaborative um, and that we that educators are kind of looking for personalized PL, I think, because I think because the demands of teaching are becoming so diverse and so great. I mean, they've always been diverse, but you just think about everything that we're asking of our teachers. Um, and a teacher's only ready at certain points of their career to engage in certain things and topics and it should feel relevant and interesting to them that they're looking outside of their schools for professional learning um, and you know one of the reasons I like formats such as online um, using social media for professional learning or the teach meet the teach meet uh, model which is where teachers come and present for I think it's three to seven minutes on a topic that they're passionate about and have some experience with and everyone learns from each other uh, is this idea of collaboration and co-creation uh, and uh, a while ago I found Mary Parker Follett's work who was a social worker in the late 1800s uh, and she was I believe a total visionary she said there are only four outcomes to meetings uh, the first one I win I get my way and it's my idea. My way or the highway, baby. Uh, second one is you win. Uh, and so with the first one, yeah, I win. That feels great. But does it feel great? I don't know. Like there's a bit of, an, there's a bit of bad taste in people's mouths, right? Two, you win. Well, I haven't won, right? Um, the third one is compromise, which she says, you know, people sort of think is a great thing. But actually, you often leave thinking, well, you know, they didn't take the best bits of my idea. and <laughs> You're just prone to resentment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the fourth one, she says, is co-creation. Co-creation, where we come with all the expertise and the skills and the knowledge that we have. And, you know, we see this with my global citizenship work with schools. I come in with my expert hat on. They come in with their educator expert hat and they're understanding their school con context hat and we co-create a plan together across time uh, I'm not telling them what to do they're not telling me what to do um, it's something new that is different in every single kind of context so I think this co-creation and this collaboration is a emerging trend it, and it's obviously being driven by digital technologies um, that you know educators and and sometimes we do this with our students we have global collaboration with our students with students in other parts of the country or the world uh, is that there's that opportunity there for global collaboration. Well, I was going to ask, what are some of the ways that you can encourage and foster and facilitate this sort of collaboration? And one of them is the digital technology. Yeah, digital technologies is a huge, huge driver of, of all of this. Um, and then I think, you know, we hear a lot about the skills of the future, empathy, respect, understanding, communication, you know, listening, um, navigating conflict, navigating difference. I believe that these are not skills of the future. They're skills of right now. You know, we are the future. The future is here and we're using oh, these like every the day. Yes. 
<laughs> what is time My anyway? Oh, time is. <laughs> My two-year-old is a jumper that says the future is now. <laughs> yes, it's a call to action. Um, yeah, the future is now, and we're using these skills, and we need to use these skills. And so, digital technologies is a huge kind of platform for that. Um, I think this idea of traditionally with PL and you know, you know, school management in the classroom—they're all pyramidal or hierarchical structures. What does we that mean? Our- what does that mean in everyday language? Yeah, we have you know the experts at the top, the leaders at the top, and then we have the the majority of people underneath them at the bottom that follow what they're told. And even if it's consultative, you still are being consultative within that framework. It's still a pyramid. And I think when we move to collaborative spaces, when we move to a um, clubhouse room where everybody's up on stage and talking, it's just a social media app. What is this clubhouse (laughs) you speak of? Oh, Mark, let me tell you, it's not a pyramid scheme, I trust. (laughs) You're going to have to clarify for those audience members that are not up to speed with Clubhouse, just in 25 words or less, what is Clubhouse? Clubhouse is a social media app that is audio only and it's essentially like talkback radio where you can join different topics in different rooms at different times. Yep. Yes. That, that's pretty clear. <laughs> I reckon that's a good summary. Yes. And teachers, when you're, are using, and a, you're heavily involved. Teachers are using. And, yeah. Yeah. And we've hosted conferences on Clubhouse for educators. I, the last one I did was the Sustainable Development Goals for Global Citizenship. How about that? Uh, but what I love about it is that you can have a big stage. Uh, it's not, I mean, you have a facilitator, but they are a facilitator. They're not dominating or they shouldn't be dominating the conversation um and that's what i love is that we're starting to see is that uh we're seeing the shift in power we're seeing a shift away from this pyramid uh and matthew barzin who wrote the book he's the ex-us ambassador to the uk among other countries he wrote a book called the power of giving away power And he talks about this work uh, and he calls it the constellation mindset. We are all stars. And when we connect with other stars at different times, we create different constellations, but it makes different pictures and outcomes at different times. So we're not, he's not saying, you know, that person's more important than that person. Sometimes stars shine brighter than others, but sometimes when those stars are in different constellations with other stars, they shine brighter, right? Depending on who I, you're around and who you're with. Yeah, I deem that a valid metaphor because that constellations are highly um, like the the kind of the viewer sees that array of stars, but then if they shift their location, then the the, mm-hmm. the kind of the arrangement is different. And then they're all their own separate entities, but then it sort of clustering together in a fabulous way. Yes. And he talks about like the power of giving power to others, making space for others, makes you stronger together. You make power by getting out of the way, by 
by empowering others. It's not power is not a finite source. And so, you know, I believe this with professional learning. It's you don't come in as the expert or, um, I mean, of course you have people who are experts, you know, have divided, devoted their lives to learning about things, but that doesn't mean that they should be talking the whole time. And it doesn't mean that they haven't got something to learn from others. Somehow I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. <laughs> it resonates strongly with me. I guess it's kind of in learning design land, there's a relationship with the subject matter expert typically. And so the learning designer can be parachuted into enemy territory. They don't need to know stuff because they've got their trusty subject matter expert and it is that really nice dynamic when it works, but sometimes you do get those power struggles and then it is that kind of very traditional model, pyramid model of the sage on the stage or the expert. And so it's it's kind of refreshing to hear a lot of these ideas of, you know, um, deconstructing some of that. And then um, I guess are there any caveats in this territory, you know, what surely the subject matter expert or the experts, they're there, <laughs> they know stuff, they know things, but, you know, you can't just kind of give the keys over to the, you know, the, the, the kind of rest of everyone. So how do you, how do you <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess it's an inherent risk, but I mean, or a hesitance or uh, I don't know, I don't want to throw a wet blanket no, on it, but um, I'm no, just thinking, no, and I, I how think do you first, temper that? The- yeah. Yeah, and I think the first thing around the, these ideas is that it's not just, you know, the two people in the room, like you were saying, um, with the subject matter. When, you know, when we're running sessions, um, often there's somebody in the room who knows more about something than you do. So you can say, like, can you share? Can you, you know, um, lead with us? Lead with us? And we see this in classrooms with our students. I think the caveat with this work is that we are humans and we have ego and we have had a whole life of conditioning to work in pyramidical structures that are hierarchical. And yes, uh, and this is not just Western society because if we look at other um, cultural groups, our Indigenous people, they, of course, you know, have their own hierarchies as well, but there are different ways of being and interacting that are probably maybe less, you know, they're more used to that distributed lead, distributed leadership is the term, right? And and so I think it takes, it's confronting for a lot of people. And I can say it's been confronting for me, you know, when I learned to be a teacher 20 something years ago, um, the idea of the teacher was the sage on the stage. And I was very young and, and I didn't kind of probably fully understand it. But there would have been a part of me that appreciated and, and enjoyed that, you know. Um, so over the years, kind of really being honest with yourself and um, learning to step back and learning to make space, and I'm still learning all those things, is is so huge. So there's a lot happening in this space. Digital, we are using digital technology right now, and we're having a we're mm. co-constructing a we're having a moment. But what, mm-hmm. what, are your, what are your final thoughts maybe on what, where's all this? What's it for? What, what's it good for? Or why would you bother in this space? You know, what oh, does it, what world, does it peace. Yeah. world peace. World oh, peace. World peace, that's a good outcome. <laughs> good intention. It's, 
I mean, we joke about those of us that work in global citizenship, we say, you know, the aim is world peace, but the aim is world peace. You know, if we all understood each other better and we were skilled at intercultural dialogue, look at all the conflicts going on around the world. I mean, imagine if our politicians were skilled with intercultural dialogue and, and had a deep understanding of other, the other countries and cultures, um, our world would be a very different place. Absolutely. I think, I think the other thing with all of this is like everything in society and education, things evolve and change. And our world is, you know, through the fourth industrial revolution, the, the introduction of digital technologies, is changing faster than it's ever changed before. I think they say that the fourth industrial revolution is something like three or four times the speed um, society is changing that it did in the first industrial revolution. Things are going so fast. And so what the world will look like tomorrow, the next day in five years and 10 years um, will be ra radically different now. And what we understand global citizenship and global competence to be will be again something, you know, a new version, a new iteration of it. Um, but that's why taking action, which is that last part of global citizenship, taking action is such an important part is that we feel empowered as educators to continue to grow and learn, um, but that our students, that we provide the skills for our students to develop to and, and the safety and the safe spaces for them to be able to do that as well. Uh, with our world changing, we've got to change too. And if we stop doing that, we're doing ourselves a disservice, we're doing our schools a disservice, and we're doing our students a disservice. Um, so bring on the old lifelong learning. In this episode, I chatted with Lottie Dowling, a teacher and global educator. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including links to more information about Lottie and her teacher professional learning projects. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.